folks are still mistrustful and hesitant when trying to access care because of that long history of both discrimination economically in terms of insurance coverage, but also the treatment they received when trying to access care with staff or providers that were just not knowledgeable or kind of outright blatantly opposed to their identity and you know verbally said so. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Transformer, the UW Medicine Care Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Kearns. In several past episodes, we've explored our healthcare equity initiative and various aspects of inequities and disparities. And in this issue, we're focusing on how gender bias, along with the intersections of race, economic status, and sexual orientation is affecting the care of transgender and gender non-binary patients and the program helping our workforce become more gender aware and medically informed about how to take care of our gender diverse patients. And welcome. I, I think this is going to be such a valuable conversation and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. And why don't we just go around the table first, introduce yourselves uh, and, and describe what you do. Hi, I'm Kareen Heinen. I'm a clinical associate professor in family medicine and internal medicine at the University of Washington. I've been here 26 years. I work primarily in primary care, but got a bee in my bonnet. Um, a few years ago to try to move the system along and trying to improve our care of uh, gender-diverse patients. So I'm now physician lead of our transgender and gender non-binary health program. Hi, I'm uh, Bobby Daly. I'm a associate professor of radiology, and I've been at the University of Washington since 1987. Um, I transitioned from male to female in 2011, and shortly thereafter became, became more active in various advocacy organizations. And in 2014, uh, I formed a, I created a transgender healthcare class for the University of Washington postgraduate students. Um, I've also been involved in a variety of advocacy organizations. I'm a member, or have been a board member of uh, GLAMA, which is the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, but now goes by uh, healthcare professionals advancing LGBTQ equality. Um, and then also uh, been on the board of the Transgender Law Center and on the board of, of Gender Justice League, which is a local advocacy organization of trans people uh, working on various healthcare issues and as well as just general trans issues. My name is Sean Johnson. I am a social worker uh, and the new transgender and gender non-binary health program coordinator here at UW. I also <laughs> began my uh, transition uh, from female to male in 2010. Um, so it's definitely seen the system kind of evolve as we've come along the last 10 years and been a part of a number of community organizations and activist organizations uh, trying to get trans folks access to healthcare. Obviously, um, I mean, this, this has been your, your life work, if you will, your work for many, many years, but the issues around this area really just coming to the forefront, I would argue, in the mainstream where we're getting a lot more awareness. Um, one of those things that's like one the, the band that just came out of nowhere, well, no, they've actually been practicing and playing for the last two decades, all of this work that has gone on. Mm -hmm. Maybe first, uh, before we really dive into the work here at the UW in general, just set the stage for why this is, this work is so important, why the University of Washington is so committed 
to work in this field. So certainly, as you say, this is not out of nowhere. Transfeminine individuals are recorded in the most ancient texts from India, and there's over three dozen indigenous populations around the world where there has been actually a societal role for either transfeminine or people of a third gender. So as it really is been there the entire time, and I've taken care of uh, transgender patients my entire career. It's just that often people, uh, because of discrimination, have had to stay undercover in order to not be overtly discriminated against. And the healthcare system has not been very friendly. So as there has been more insurance coverage, which is all a side effect of the change in our cultural awareness that this is a thing, and it has been a thing, there has been a great deal of um, need uh, becoming manifest about people uh, requiring the care uh, for both gender-affirming care, but also just access to general health care for all their medical conditions. And Bobby, uh, it, it, it's really twofold, isn't it? Not only denial of care, but just a, a tremendous lack of knowledge, awareness, understanding, or outright bias by healthcare providers. Yeah, I, I think one thing that's increased that knowledge is the internet. People have become much more aware. Uh, there have been all sorts of you know websites that support trans health and you know transgender transition and other types of uh, trans-related topics. Um, in terms of health care coverage, uh, up until about 2014, there were only six states that uh, banned transgender exclusions from the health insurance programs. So There's California, Colorado, Connecticut, Oregon, Vermont, and the uh, District of uh, <coughs> D.C., Washington, D.C. And so in 2014, we started working on getting Washington State, a coalition of different uh, professionals within the legal and uh, medical and social work a realm t together and uh, worked on getting trans health care coverage in Washington State. Sean, we've talked a lot on this, this podcast over the last two years about equity and various issues, but I'm just looking at some of the numbers. 33,000 individuals within Washington State that identify as transgender or gender non-binary. And then as I start to read down uh, the very troubling statistics about negative experience, discrimination, I mean, these numbers are appalling. What, what people uh, have experienced over the years in the, the lack of access or the outright discrimination. Absolutely, and I think that that history speaks to kind of why folks are still mistrustful and hesitant when trying to access care because of that long history of both discrimination economically in terms of insurance coverage, but also the treatment they received when trying to access care with staff or providers that were just not knowledgeable or kind of outright blatantly opposed to their identity and you know verbally said so. So here at the University of Washington at UW Medicine then, what is going, you all, uh, you, you mentioned the different roles that you have. Maybe talk from the 40,000 foot view, what's sort of starting to be put in place or what is in place now? What are you working on? And then we'll talk specifically more about the details of, of the work that's being done. So my initial and main goal has been to get our primary care workforce both gender aware and appropriate, but also medically competent to take care of uh, gender diverse patients. Reason being is that a lot of people feel like they're tolerant, but they don't really understand the life experiences. And certainly, for instance, trauma within the medical system is one of them, uh, but also all of the medical 
finessing and specifics that apply to gender diverse patients. Bobby, is I'm just thinking about going back to conversations we've had here. It's got to be exponentially difficult in this community. I think about conversations I've had uh, w with various leads here at UW Medicine around uh, around gender, around race, and all that. So now you start adding more and more layers, and this just must be even exponentially more challenging and more uh, more issues that we have to uh, overcome here. Um, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, interconnectivity between, you know, all these different race and gender and, uh, you know, sexual orientation and all that. And, uh, yeah, it gets to be uh, quite challenging to educate people about you know, the different things because it seems like there's so many different uh, facets. And one thing that strikes me is that all of us being human try to pigeonhole people as far as, okay, well, you're gender diverse or you're African-American or you are gay. But then when you get into the intersectionalities, that's when it gets really requires an open mind. And unfortunately, that group of people have the greatest disparities of all because they kind of get it from all sides. Well, Sean, I'm, I'm, again, I'm going to go back to some of these numbers. 38% uh, report a negative health care experience, 16% refused care, 50% had to teach providers about transgender care. Uh, uh, you guys mentioned already a, a number of people just avoiding care altogether out, out of an outright fear, suicide, poverty. My heart breaks when I hear that about anybody. And I'm going to go back. Uh, the, the doctor here used the word human. We're all just human. And so it'd be nice if we didn't have to pigeonhole all these labels, but for now we have them and we have to figure out how we break those silos down, right? I mean, I think that's definitely a challenge. Uh, I had the opportunity to listen to the toxic stew on microaggressions with uh, Pat and Paula and... Uh, the Jonathan Kander. Right, uh, Jonathan. And uh, anyway, as they talked about the health disparities among folks of color, that certainly isn't unique. Uh, to just cis folks, I mean, the trans community also experiences those same kind of uh, there's some, some same kind of disparities in terms of trans plus trans woman, trans woman of color, and you're looking at like all of those coming together. And of course, the disparities are are larger. The needs are higher because they're also more likely to experience homelessness or um, unemployment uh, or a number of assaults. So. I think we have to do our due diligence, and I'm glad that we're working with the equity, health equity, with Paul and Pat and Keith to really try to look at those things as a joint care issue versus silos of separate need. How would you assess where UW Medicine is now, uh, and, and then we can start to look at the road ahead? So we have had this wonderful care transformation approach spearheaded by Dr. Pellegrini, our previous uh, chief medical officer, who really is launching a look at all of these things simultaneously, which is what you need to do. And so I think in that way, actually, the University of Washington has been uh, particularly gifted. Certainly when it comes to some specific pieces to gender-affirming care, we have a ways to go. Um, but I think that looking at it from a system is key. And uh, uh, especially in an academic setting, you sort of have to start from the top. UW Medicine has, um, in recent years, been a part of the Healthcare Equality Index, which is a nationwide uh, evaluation of hospitals in terms of how they uh, support the LGBT community. And 
UW has always been on that list of those that are 100% compliant with the HEI index. And so it's been a big priority of UW Medicine from the you know administrative side. So where do we go then? What is the vision? What are the overarching goals? And, and really the, the, the mission, if you will, of the uh, TGNB program. So we want to make every aspect of care that people get at the University of Washington accessible and, and safe feeling for all of our LGBTQ patients. But because gender diverse patients have really been in the hot seat as far as being the most discriminated against, uh, that's of course our focus. Um, what that entails is meaning get training not only our primary care staff, our front desk people, our uh, you know, back office staff, all of our providers, how to be gender aware and appropriate. But also now starting, we've given a talk to Northwest Hospital's uh, emergency department staff, and uh, we'll be working on the inpatient side to try and make all uh, places where people interact with healthcare because trans people need all kinds of healthcare. And so that is one of our main focuses right now, as well as trying to get gender affirming hormone therapy readily available in our multifocal primary care system. How much does the current, uh, the, the, the insurance companies, how much does the current system make that difficult to provide that kind of medical care? Well, Thankfully, with actually the ACA is the, one of the clauses in the ACA is I think what allowed the Washington State Office of Insurance uh, Commission. They were one of the I think first eight to kind of jump on that clause and really demand uh, that the providers, the carriers, whether it be Medicaid, state carrier, or your private carriers, would have to kind of follow Medicare's lead and provide access. Now, on paper, that looks amazing, and certainly that's allowed a lot more <laughs> folks to access things. Uh, and you know, start seeking out care that's that's covered. Uh, they can't, you know, there's no riders anymore where companies just won't, you know, everything but that kind of thing. But on the ground, you'll hear definitely about still folks having they've changed jobs and now it's taking them two months and they have to call the insurance commission and say, hey, I still can't get my hormones covered. So on paper, it looks good, but I think we're still at a very crucial time in making sure that. The insurance carriers kind of live up to that and that all the things, all the boxes they need everybody to check are kind of well known. So there's no kind of barrier there, um, as well as uh, just trying to make sure that there's enough services. Right. If you kind of flood a system with thousands and thousands of people that prior were not able to access specific procedures or services. Now you've got systems trying to really uh take that on and provide that care, which is going to take some time. And Sean, I want to go back to you. You, you were talking a little bit um, a moment ago uh, in the clinics and, and, and that access to care. I mean, it seems to me that you have to educate, first of all, patients as to what their rights are, what services actually are covered and available, because I, can, I know what it's like when you call your insurance company and, you know, we'll put you on hold for six days, never get back to you. And it's very easy to just give up and all of that and figure out, okay, I'm, I'm screwed here, basically. Uh, but then also to have staff front desk staff that are knowledgeable, empathetic, and are there to be advocates for the patients as well, whether it's pronouns or, or a number of issues, uh, single uh, bathrooms, things like that. So a number of issues we have to deal with here. Yeah, and I, I like that you, you termed it like advocate, right? I think that you know my vision, especially in the primary care setting, would be that 
staff are they have the resources they need they have the training they need um, to be those advocates so they know uh, what resources are local that uh, folks may need outside of that clinic and they know uh, what insurance kind of carriers cover what and what needs to happen and so that's part of my role right now is really trying to streamline that because I think in the past a lot of folks have been doing it like in an individual by individual case so you get these kind of patchwork but it feels like everybody's trying to start from scratch every time so the idea that we could kind of make it as easy as possible so that that responsibility isn't placed on the patient, which it typically has been, and that we get these system things in line to kind of support that, for example, billing, right? Like if your identity documents do not all line up, you may get a bill for something that you shouldn't have gotten a bill for. So then that means the patient is spending significant amount of time after a visit really trying to work that out. And so I think there's both training for uh, staff and you know what's available locally and what's going on but also i think our systems are still kind of trying to evolve and catch up to make sure that we're providing the same kind of access to like for everybody else yeah for instance a trans man may have a cervical pap and in the past we get stuck for, with that bill even though it's completely physiologically appropriate that or that person would have a prostate exactly. Um, exactly a psa or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, call me Pollyannish, but I would hope that uh, my medical staff is an advocate regardless of my condition, my gender, my race. Uh, so th that's the idealist in me at some but point. But they need tools. Pragmatically speaking, so the work that you are doing, what does that look like? Um, how are you trying to make this work part of the system? I think one part is in trying to get some education for the medical students and uh, the health professional students. Um, so that's why we, tr we started creating, a, there's an LGBT elective and there's also the trans healthcare elective that I do, but it's only a one quarter par part of their uh, elective schedule and it's uh, usually for the first or second year students. And uh, we really need to get it integrated into the full medical curriculum. And I gave a presentation on that to our curriculum committee this year, and we're really making some progress along that line. And partially it's because the medical students are woke and they want to hear about this information. We have an LGBTQ health student pathway, which is the first in the nation here, where people can have um, extra training, including those classes Bobby referenced, and then also get specific clinical experiences throughout their medical school career. Also, We've greatly increased, just in the last year, the availability of both clinical and didactic availability to some of our residents. Um, and so uh, I think that's gonna be also a positive trend for the future. For me, I, th I think that in general, I mean, medical providers or mental health providers or providers in general are both people and providers. I mean, I think most folks go into health to serve, to, you know, because they're ca compassionate people and they wanna help folks, but at the same time, they're not divorced from kind of the societal norms and expectations and all of these uh, cultural kind of norms that we've created. So I think for me, especially on the inpatient side, uh, I think there are good intention folks that are looking for ways to be better because they want to care for their patients. Um, and then I think, you know, just like everywhere else, you have folks that are going to be more resistant because they're carrying those unintentional or intentional biases around, you know, it follows them to the office. Uh, UW-Messon has a LGBT uh, clinical care committee that both Corinne and I have been on, and uh, their purpose is to try to, you know, improve those healthcare disparities throughout our UW system in terms of, you know, uh, gender-neutral bathrooms and signage and uh, pe teaching people pronouns, um, <coughs> access to learning modules online where people can learn, you know, a variety of different uh, 
areas of uh, you know how, how to deal with trans folks and other types of people. You you mentioned pronouns and and that's an interesting one. I you know over the last year or two, I know more and more people include that, for example, in their email signature and. And other people, well, why are you doing that? And, and I think that's an important, again, for lay people who may not know much, people who are not in, why, especially around pronouns, is it important to to declare that and, and, and to have that be part of our conversation? As part of the electronic medical record, we record the patient's legal name, but uh, when a person comes into clinic and they get called, um, people have the preferred name. And so now within our medical rec electronic medical record, there's a place where you, they'll usually ask you at the front desk, you know, what's your preferred name and what are your pronouns? Um, as part of their, their new openness to this type of information so that I recall that when I was first transitioning, I went to get a mammogram and I was dressed as a man at that time. And uh, when they called uh, Roberta in the breast clinic, it was, or they asked for Bob, and I you know, thought, well, well, that's kind of embarrassing. You know, they didn't use my preferred name. Right. So it really uh, can make it a lot more comfortable if you're given the respect of using the right pronouns and uh, your preferred name. And that's been one success of our program is we really rolled that out in the last year. We actually, because we have open front desks, um, there isn't a lot of privacy, so when people come up, we have like a laminated sheet that people can write their preferred name and circle their pronoun to help preserve their privacy, but then it's in the medical record, and actually the person's uh, name and use is at the top, and their legal name is in smaller print below, um, which I pr greatly prefer. So medically speaking, uh, what are the actual service capabilities here at UW Medicine? What are the range of, of medical services that uh, are provided? Um, in terms of, you know, coverage, we have pretty good coverage, I think, in terms of the medical services, in terms of, um, you know, access to hormones, access to um, just basic, uh, you know, healthcare services for the gender diverse community. Um, where it gets a little bit tricky is when it comes to surgical coverage, because there's really nobody in the UW system that does. Uh, a variety of uh, gender-affirming surgeries. There's some people in the plastics department that will do some of the facial surgeries, but in terms of uh, top surgery for um, uh, trans men, uh, removing the breasts and creating a, a masculine chest, or uh, breast augmentation for trans women, or d particularly the uh, genital reconstruction surgeries. Uh, there's one person in Yakima who does it in Washington State, but that's the only person. Next closest is in uh, Oregon, uh, in Portland. But otherwise, a person has to go to either California or to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, or somewhere else in the country, because there's not, not that many people that do that kind of surgery. And the coverage for that is fairly limited in terms of uh, insurance coverage. Now, independent of this program, definitely our gynecologists and urologists had been very active before at making sure people could get hysterectomies and uh, removal of their ovaries and testes without regards even to this revolution in, in insurance care. And so those surgeries have been available and are, and in a pretty sensitive way. And I am not responsible for that. That is all on their good effort. And we had had some traction in improving top surgery, but then we had a loss of staff. And so we're kind of trying to recreate some momentum there. But you have to have someone who is both has the right skill set and uh, can try to affect change in our big system. And that um, momentum is nothing to 
to sneeze at as far as taking quite a bit of effort to start. When it strikes me, uh, you mentioned how how little education there is in, in med school or around these areas, you know, one or two electives, not, not a full rotation, et cetera. How do we get uh, more skilled providers into this area, or or more more skilled to those current providers that are already out there in these various areas? Right. Well, I think it's coming down the pipeline, and as I said, we've made a lot of progress in general in our medical school and and residency uh, efforts. Um, we have postgraduate uh, train trainees who this they want to make this their life's work, and they have been certainly allowed to pursue that. It is, as you say, a little more challenging to um, teach old dogs like me new tricks. This is not a, a new trick to me, and so that's why I can do it. But um, uh, th there has to be sort of a will, and that's why it's been great for this to come top down, and I think we are going to get traction on it. But it isn't an overnight process, unfortunately. Yeah. Sean, when you go out, when you talk to other providers, um, whatever, what, a specialist, a, a surgeon, et cetera, are there many out there who are willing to say, oh, I, I would like to learn that, I would like to advance my skills, I'd like to be able to provide more of those services? Is that even a, a reality at this point to the doctor's point? Is it too hard to teach a, an old dog new tricks and you try and make a generational change from the ground up, if you will, from med school into residency, et cetera? I mean, I think there's it, there's so much involved with that, I think, and I think it really varies across departments and different facilities, given their capacity. Sometimes you just run into, uh, you know, folks are short-staffed, like we're looking, we're recruiting for another provider right now. Uh, as we've talked about, kind of what is the insurance going to pay? So that also impacts the system on taking on, I think, surgical care. But in terms of, like, the younger folks in particular really getting on board with this, I mean, like we've mentioned, some of the, what we call bottom surgery isn't available really locally. However, when folks go wherever they go uh, and they have complications when they get home, we're, we're the ones seeing those folks. So I think about um, one of the surgical residents, uh, Dr. Shane Morrison, who uh, just published um, recently around what it looks like in acute centers, so in your ED or, or your urgent care, like what does it look like, um, but also what does it look like when there's post-op complications, and we're working now and, and publishing around techniques we've kind of looked at to try to fix those things. So I think there's interest, but it will kind of come down to system support, like how much the institution is gonna support that, as well as like the financial part that the insurance carriers really have to like deem it, and you know, pay for it basically. And I will say our urology department really are stars compared to anywhere as far as repairing some of the complications. They are, are tremendously good. Also our reproductive health team have been helping again outside of any programmatic efforts to provide fertility care and and also management of things like uh, uh, ex periods which can cause great distress to transmasculine individuals to help with amenorrhea. So those things also are available within our system. Sort of along those lines, <clears throat> you know, within, for the pediatric population, there's also um, a lot of great people here in the community that are taking on uh, young people who are earlier in their, early in their transition and doing uh, hormone blocking uh, medications, you know, to, to delay puberty and, uh, you know, counseling and just having, giving them support in terms of making their transition at an early stage more. 
Yes, and Children's has a gender clinic that provides those services, and they're actually working towards surgical services as well. Sean, maybe uh, uh, talk a little bit more specifically about some of the ways in which this work is manifesting. What are you working on? What are some of those those touch points, those milestones, uh, the flags in the ground, if you will, that you're using to help further this work? Well, in addition to social work, I also have uh, a background in public health. Um, so I like numbers, and I've always been a firm believer that being able to really depict accurately in numbers to folks uh, kind of increases folks' buy-in. And so I think uh, in terms of we're just, you know, this year or very recently started to collect this data, so we're starting to see, like, how many si people we have in our system, what those needs are, where the need is in terms of, like, what geographical area, et cetera. So I think, you know, that's what I'm taking a look at as well uh, is how many people uh, do we have and what are those needs? Um, continuing to train, uh, the numbers I pulled most recently is that just in the kind of like overall basic 101 training for like front, uh, front end, front office staff, et cetera, is close to 2,000. Joey, my predecessor, um, you know, diligently worked and trained a significant amount of people. That's huge, 2,000 people in a year. There's been almost 100 uh, providers been trained in the, the tier two training uh, with Kareen. So I think we're starting to get there, but I think as we get data and we can really start to par parse out these, these needs more specifically, then we will have uh, numbers in hand and kind of an action plan on how to address them once we can kind of see what they are. Um, I think on the primary care or outpatient kind of setting, uh, as we've kind of discussed earlier, my hope is that we really get the resources to the clinic staff, whether they be medical or more like ancillary or supportive staff, so that the patient isn't burdened. And I think that um, in general, we're really trying to uh, support folks. So while we can't necessarily offer this specific surgery right now, we can get that referral process started. We can start to talk to the insurance and get folks set up and get them to the right place uh, as we don't have it right now. So I think that that's essential and really trying to build rapport with the community because for so long they've just been kind of openly denied. So if we can't do it, how can we best help you to get that done, I think is an important step we need to take in rebuilding that, that rapport with our patients. Obviously, you want to be a, the gold standard. Would the goal, though, be that at some point this becomes the model for the rest of the country? Not just that UW Medicine is known as that, but that you actually become the seeds that sprout all over the country and ultimately the world when it comes to Is that too grandiose and ambitious at this point to even think that way? I think so. There's a lot of great people throughout, uh, <clears throat> all throughout the country who are doing great work in this area. I agree. You're all too humble. <laughs> oh, no, we're not. <laughs> we're just, You're just we're, I'm a real pragmatist, believe me. I grew up on a farm. I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> um, but um, what I would say is that as a, our role as an academic institution, like I give talks regularly at our primary care conferences, including urology and gynecology, to help bring people who look to the university for training um, interest and, and have an interest in this information about both uh, approach to the patient and being gender aware, but also the concrete information that people need to be medically competent, which is something I'm going to keep coming back to all the time because 
that is uh, really the critical piece for helping people be as healthy as possible is not just to be tolerant, which I think are in our general area here, people are quite tolerant, although they may not know their own blind spots. But to know that there is a there there when it comes to medical knowledge is critical and uh, inadequately understood. So that is our goal in part of the primary care ne network is actually to be able to label on our websites the people who've had the extra training for trans health care. And I take this idea of being medically competent very seriously. And so people are participating in uh, a Zoom meeting where they learn more about the medical side. And also people can bring cases when they don't know what to do. I'm sort of a informal support pe person to all of our primary care staff when they have a question that comes up um, that I um, give them some tips um, uh, online uh, about how to, to manage these things. And so I am very much committed that people can't just say, hey, I'm into this um, without having a knowledge base. And I kind of am assessing people as we go as to who um, has kind of the critical tools that they need to do this in a uh, uh, accurate way. There are a lot of finesse points and you have to be very flexibly minded that when someone comes in with a beard and looks quite burly that they could have pelvic inflammatory disease or be pregnant and that is not common sense at all and so you have to really train your mind to be able to think in that way so sean then where do we go from here what uh what are the next milestones the goals both short-term long-term some of the resources perhaps that you're developing I mean, I think one of our priorities is to, again, be able to have a list and uh, uh, providers that we know are both respectful but also can provide quality care uh, on the medical side. Um, so I know that that's something that we're actively trying to, to work on. So when folks call in to see doctors, we have kind of a list and we know where to, to, to send them in terms of this provider, someone you can see, et cetera. Uh, you know, like we've talked about throughout this segment, uh, we're looking to try to get more surgical options uh, and have that kind of streamlined. Uh, we're gonna be having a community conversation uh, along with uh, under like the health equity. Uh, they've had several community conversations out in public. I think they had three or four uh, and we'll be working one on October 22nd. It's gonna be at Lifelong from six to 8 p.m. I think it's a Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and so that's gonna be an opportunity to outreach to the community and kind of hear back. Uh, about what their needs may be or what their experiences with the UW Health System has thus far been. Um, and I think that uh, being able to have that rapport and that trust build with uh, the population locally is, is gonna be essential to, to really move us forward um, and have folks uh, both see us and have confidence that we'll, we'll, they will have a good encounter with us. Doctor, for you, looking ahead, some of the, the goals, um, the next milestones, either short or long term, where do we go from here? So our efforts at education are going to be an ongoing uh, effort because we have new staff. We There are always uh, details that haven't been thought of. And so, for instance, now we're working with the LGBTQ Clinical Care Advisory Committee to try and get pronouns on our ID badges in some way, shape, or form. So there's all these details, all these ways that interaction with a system, especially a big system like ours, can be perceived by a patient. One real, 
accomplishment, I think, was just to get our contact center, when people call for an appointment for the first time, that they are asked about their pronouns and how they would like to be called. I, that is no small feat, and I, that's not a very common accomplishment, for instance. Um, and then moving forward, we would like to see more breadth of services. Sean, you've been in this world just for a little while, but uh, you've obviously been around UW Medicine for some time here. Are you noticing changes? Are you hearing from patients, from providers, from staff that, hey, things are getting better? What, what's the word on the street, if you will? <laughs> uh, yes, the word on the street is that we are, um, we are kind of changing and that, to my surprise, uh, once our inpatient, specifically records, kind of updated and now uh, preferred name and pronoun are listed, it's been interesting to watch that six to nine month change. Uh, one, to get the enormous requests for training because folks are really seeing that, hey, we don't really know what we're doing all the time, so can we get some, some training? So that's been encouraging versus folks just, you know, moving on and not having an interest in making sure that care is better. But I think too, I mean, I've heard on the floors, I've, ha I've been kind of not sidebarred, but been walking on a floor and watched a physical therapist and a nurse talk about this person using they pronouns and kind of making sure each one of them understand what's going on and address the patient correctly, but also um, both understand kind of what that gender identity is. So it's been interesting to see the staff reaction as, as it's just been kind of placed upon them of sorts. Um, so. I think that we're moving in the right direction. And as someone that tried to, like as a staffer that was employed here and could not get insurance coverage for uh, my health needs at that time, I mean, just in these, what, eight, nine years, to see kind of where we're at now is super significant uh, from where I saw myself as a both an employee and as a patient really, really move. I would also say in terms of changes, just the support we can offer the clinicians. Um, just the other day, uh, I was, on a meeting with the social workers that are housed in the, the various clinics, and we were discussing what it would look like to train folks in the clinics to have assessments, to be able to provide the assessments, the letters of support needed by mental health providers in the case of surgery like specifically, uh, and making sure that we are trained and, and can, are comfortable doing that, but are open to doing that. Uh, and in certain cases, uh, PhD level mental health provider needs to kind of write a letter of support, especially as is, the case now there are so many kind of gatekeeping provisions especially like really attached to with the insurances that you've got to have this kind of letter of support within this time frame of a surgical intervention or a visit uh, that really can snag you know really be a barrier for folks especially as we've already talked about uh, resources are lower in our community in terms of unemployment uh, and shelter and all of these things so having to have asked someone to jump through another another hoop to get kind of like a letter of endorsement from a provider can be really difficult. Our primary care force here, when they prescribe gender-affirming hormones, work from an informed consent model, meaning if a person comes in and says that they are in need of gender-affirming hormone therapy, that we go through and list you know, the risks and benefits, the implications, and if the person is of, uh, is competent and of age, then we just go ahead and work with them uh, to do that. They don't require any kind of mental health evaluation as used to be the standard um, a few years ago. Some providers though still require a letter from a therapist, which is so 1999. And so we're currently working on trying to utilize our consulting psychiatrists that 
travel around to our clinics and trying to get them up to speed and uh, kind of see what their interest is in helping us provide those letters so that folks can go on to get care, whether it be with us or not, because at the end of the day, the surgical need is uh, essential and necessary for the overall uh, health of those patients. And we're gonna see those patients back in the primary care settings ongoing. So lastly, doctor, uh, obviously we've identified uh, tremendous work being done, but a long way to go. How do you feel about the future? Uh, when, when you look ahead, are you optimistic that, that this will be, that the future is very bright here at UW Medicine in this area? I think that as people come to understand this, they can't unknow it, and that we'll just kind of build on the trainings we've been working on and the cultural changes throughout society. So I'm very hopeful. I would like everything to be perfect now, um, but that is uh, where tenacity comes in, and so I think we've got a lot of that on our side too. And you have a fabulous team around you and the commitment of the leadership, which, I, I mean, you guys could be doing this work. I've, I've worked in many corporate environments where this kind of work is going on and then somebody at the top, yeah, no, nah, I'm, I'm done, I'm moving on, or that person gets fired. It seems like institutionally, you have, they have your backs. That is critical and wonderful. Yeah, I'm hopeful of the future in terms of like in Seattle, the community itself is collaborating. I think that's so essential as there are resources that are scarce and the knowledge is still kind of up and coming that the various institutions really work together, including the mental health systems to kind of help us provide what we can't get to capacity-wise or what we don't have access to to really help the patients overall and the community overall really get to a thriving model from a surviving model. I'm quite uh, optimistic about the future. I've you know, noticed the, the changes in our healthcare system from being a patient myself within the system for various things. And uh, I think we are making progress. And I think you know, committees like the uh, LGBT Advisory Committee and other um, groups within the, the medical center and within UW Medicine are really working on trying to make this an inclusive environment. Dr. Green Heinen is a family medicine physician at the UW Neighborhood Belltown Clinic and the physician lead for UW Medicine's transgender and gender non-binary program. Bobby Daly is a neuroradiologist at UW Medical Center and a board member of the Gender Justice League. And Sean Johnson is the health program coordinator for UW Medicine's transgender and gender non-binary program. Thank you all for such uh, an enlightening and inspiring conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that's going to do it for another episode of The Transformer. I'm Josh Kearns. We'll talk again soon as we explore more of the transformative work you and your UW Medicine colleagues are putting into practice. Thanks so much for listening and take care. Music